welcome to Directly Correct, a People Inks podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Michael Arena. What's up, Michael? Hey, guys. How are you? Good. We've never met, so it's nice to meet you. <laughs> it feels like we should have met, though, doesn't it? Um, yes, we've never met, but nice, nice to meet you officially, Cole. Yeah, absolutely. Have, have we met, Michael? I'm not sure. I don't. I, it's been a while, my friend. I don't know. I don't know. I don't <laughs> it's even know where you're. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Is there anybody? Where are you, where are you located, you Michael? Or are you still alone? Sorry, I think we spoke over each other. What did you say? I was asking Scotty, is there anybody there with you these days, or are you still there alone? There are very few people. I think that uh, on this floor, I may be the only one, especially on a Friday, recording on a Friday. There's there's hardly anyone around, but I'm seeing more buzz around campus. There's uh, more people than I'd ever seen before at uh, one of the larger buildings uh, the other day. So I think we're starting to see signs of turnaround and people are starting to come back. Um, so it, it, it's great. It's great for the city. It's great for uh, just, you know, feeling more alive, really. Yeah. Maybe they're following some of Michael Arena's research about <laughs> collaborating. I don't know. No, they're, they, they're most likely the last people to listen to that call. <laughs> oh, goodness. Right, Scotty? Oh, they, goodness. They, they ran. They're listening to Scott, but they, they weren't listening to me. They ran me out. Not exactly true, but. Yeah. Greatly missed, though. Greatly missed. Anything you want to talk about on that front, Michael? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I don't know what we're going to talk. I, I can imagine what we're going to talk about, Scott, but I, I don't actually know, so. It's just a loose conversation. We're going to talk about uh, networks and uh, coming back to the office and pretty much any, anywhere we want to go with it. Yeah. Well, Cole, since you haven't met Michael yet, I'll give a little rundown of him, a little introduction. So Michael is a professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania's master's program, former VP of talent development at Amazon and GM, uh, network analysis guru. You've probably heard of him before. Uh, author of Adaptive Space, brilliant book motorcycle fanatic and uh he's a founder of a new uh startup uh, consulting firm Sindezo, focused on uh bringing people together and making the office a better place mm. welcome michael yeah yeah thanks scotty thanks we, we, we could talk about a lot but the motorcycle thing sounds pretty cool right <laughs> yeah I was, I was like is it crotch rockets or is it um harley davison's like what are we talking about here yeah, it's kind of it's kind of the latter. Uh, you know, I've got a number of bikes, uh, so I wouldn't say I'm glued into Harley Davidson, but I would I would say that we're more cruiser style than uh, crotch rocket. What are those big ones where they have the handlebars like up high? <laughs> I'm somewhere in between those two. Um, okay. Yeah, they, I, I think they call those um, ape grips or ape handles or something oh, yeah. like that. You know. Uh, they, they do the arm stretch for you and your arms are never the same after that. But uh, no, I, I, uh, I love riding motorcycles. It's one of the reasons I live in the South. And I, I think Scotty would tell you, I one time uh, took a cross country trip as a corporate drop on at one point in my career and just spent, you know, a, a good month and a half on the road, you know, driving across this wonderful country. It was a, it was an awesome way to network with a lot of strangers. I was I was building weak ties. Oh yeah, new connections that you would never see otherwise. Yeah. I, I I worry about you though. I worry about you. Like I think Jay Leno was just in a terrible motorcycle accident. And I've 
I've always been terrified of motorcycles. Cole, have you ever ridden a motorcycle? I've ridden scooters. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be more uh, worried about no, Cole a, on a not scooter. Not a motorcycle guy. <laughs> I'd be more worried about the scooter myself. I, I've seen some uh, pretty vicious wipeouts on those, you know, like little e-scooters that you rent by the hour or whatever. Uh, when I lived in downtown Dallas, I'd see this zooming up and down the road and you know, people, they got a few drinks in them and, uh, you know, they hop on these scooters and what you'd expect happens, you know? I guess I meant a moped, you know, like they're, they're not quite a motorcycle, but they're like anyway, a Vespa. There's nothing to brag there? about there. <laughs> how many, how many, how many motorcycles do you have, Michael? I didn't, I didn't know you had like multiple or a whole garage full of them. Well, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I've got two that work. And a few in pieces, um, you know. So I, I I do have the you know the more traditional uh, road glide Harley Davidson. I've got a custom bike that I have made for myself. Um, and then I've got an old Indian that is waiting for me to find some time. Uh, oh wow! But you alluded to this earlier around like are people actually coming back to the office? And like we're almost three years into this pandemic now, and. At first, it seemed like there was going to be a stretch where people are going to come back to the office, but uh, it, it feels like people, you know, employees are really reluctant to come in and uh, organizations are either making mandates to you must come in or we're going fully remote. Is, is this here to stay or are we ever going to get back to normal, Michael? What do you, what's your take? It's, an, it's such an interesting question. Um... I don't know if anyone would recognize what normal would look like after this. Uh, so, yeah. I, you know, that's my that's my first thought on the question. Um, and and I think that the human beings will refuse to come back in uh, anything that is anything remotely compared to what, no pun intended, what it was before. Um, so it, it's really interesting. I you know I get frustrated about this, uh, where we are as society on this debate, because the debate, you know, you're, you're exactly right. Like, we're really, you know, two years from the height of the pandemic, three years from the beginning of the pandemic. And we're still having, I, I tend to argue this way, we're still having conversations about attitudes and platitudes. Like, <laughs> you got the Jamie Dimons and the Elon Musk saying all kinds of things like Zoom is management by Hollywood squares. And you know, Musk saying, hey, you know, um, for those people who say they're productive remotely, you know, pretend to be productive someplace else and get back in the office. You know, and then you got employees, frankly, that are contradicting themselves. Um, you know, and, and you know, if I were to lean on one side, I would say we learned a lot about how to be very effective in remote work. And there are probably net net more benefits than losses. But there are some challenges. And you know, I, I think employees are even contradicting themselves. So if we only listen to the attitudes and the sediment, we hear things like, um, hey, you know, I, I want to, you know, 70, whatever that number is today, right? 75 or 80% of employees want to continue to remain remote and be flexible. And then in the same surveys, they're saying things like 69% of us can't wait to get back in the office to reconnect with our friends. And <laughs> yes. so, so it's like, these are the same human beings in the same survey. So, so I, I don't know, like I, I take the middle ground on this and think that there's a third way. I think we're a long ways away from what, what the optimal third way is, but it's you know a way where we let the science prevail. And we recognize like there are some things 
that we just as human beings can do better remotely. Like we are so much better at heads down. I, I've been writing all morning and I could have never right. done it in the office. I would have been distracted and interrupted dozens of times. And if I'm in a stream of consciousness and trying to really be heads down in deep concentration work, there's no substitute for you know, being somewhat in isolation. Obviously, you need to get ideas. That doesn't happen in isolation. But on, on the other hand, you know, there are just times where I, I don't know, it's lonely, right? It's not. Oh, absolutely. It's not. Um, I want to see real human beings. I want to, I want to absorb your energy and I want to get back in the office and I want to, you know, brainstorm and, you know, Scott, this will mean a lot to Scott Cole, but I, I want like, I want to go to the whiteboard. Like I want to start scribbling on the, those whiteboards <laughs> behind you that, um that we've done so many times before. And and I just, you know, I don't know, maybe you can replicate that someday in a remote environment, but I, I think we're a little ways away from what that looks like just yet. I will say this, maybe just to follow up and sort of uh, capstone all that. You know, I think we will look back on this. I think the science is emergent. And, you know, anyone who proclaims this is what the science says, as I would have, quite honestly, in the early days of the pandemic, is foolish. because. Uh, much of what we learned before has changed because the complete context is different. But the science yeah. is emerging. And I think we will probably look back on these five, this five-year period, you know, the three that we just went through, the next two of radical experimentation as like a punctuated equilibrium moment in work and or the future of work. And I don't know, it's 40 to 50 years into the future to be bold for a moment. Yeah. Uh, because we're now paying attention to things that we would have never even, we left completely the chance before, um, and especially as it relates to our connections and the importance of them. Well, Michael, I appreciate you bringing up science because I know you publish in a lot of venues, but the one I follow the most is you always post stuff in the HR Exchange Network. And I think you put out really, really good scientific findings on this. And what I like is, uh, first of all, they are based in the science, but they're also very balanced. And I'm wondering, because I do find in this debate about remote versus in-person, there's people that are pretty militant on both sides of it. And I, I feel like you do as best as you can to kind of cut down the middle of it. Do you ever get pushback from either side? And if so, what is that pushback? I, I, everything I ever write gets pushback, which is interesting. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, it's, it's such an awesome question. Um, I don't, I mean, I think we got two extreme camps on this topic, you know, leaders, not all leaders, of course not, but many leaders who want people to come back in the office. And I have a lot of empathy for them because, you know, there's now one thing that, one additional thing that incredibly busy leaders now have to manage more intentionally. Um, and, you know, so it's easy for them to just say, hey, let's just get back in the office because we left these connections things to chance and it just happened naturally. And we didn't have to manage it. Now there's like a whole nother chapter in the management textbook because, you know, they need to think about when do I pull teams back? When don't I pull, you know, so, so they're always going to have a point of view where, where I really get, you know, I'll call more hostile points of view are from employees that say, ah, that's garbage. You know, that's not what the science says. First of all, I'm really careful about how I express science as I was just a couple moments ago. And then they start to attack that. You know, this isn't even close to true. And then they go straight to their personal bias. And, you know, my, I have to resist the temptation 
to charge into those kind of arguments because they're not logical. Um, so the, the short answer is yes. And I don't know the answer. I'm like, I don't know what this outcome is. I will tell you this. I would have said to you, I learned from the my MIT Media Lab experience, I learned that you know proximity matters immensely to performance. And I would have been the very first person that would have said, our pro productivity is going to tank whenever we lose proximity, because all the studies I've ever done would say that maybe 30 to 40% of the variation, variance can be explained by this. Turns out that proximity is just a proxy for cohesion. And turns out that we can maintain cohesion rather well inside a remote environment. So I don't think we know the answers to many of these things. So those, those arguments are fun for me. Um, I try to avoid, you know, the the ones that are not grounded in some sort of, you know, science, if you or some experiment, if you will. Uh, but yeah, there's always there's always pushback. Well, like, on a note of like science and coming back to the office, like Fowler and Christakis talk about, ninety percent of your learning should take place through social learning, just because it's so much faster. You can come to the office, you can observe someone behaving, perhaps on culture or off culture, and take that with you and you don't have to go through an experience just the same as uh oh one of the reasons that amazon uh consumers so great because you can go on the website and read about all the different products the pros and cons you don't have to go buy the products and deal with this and uh i'll brag on michael here like he was talking about using the science to bring back folks two years ago in a very intentional way a way that people are just now starting to talk about because just let it happen. You use the term uh, social lottery, which I absolutely love. It's fantastic. You got to be intentional and bring people together and let them learn from one another in a way that uh, will best benefit them and the organization. Yeah, I, th th I, I like that fun with some of these terms, Scott, as you know, and you know, this whole concept of the social lottery, the first thing, first thing we need to say is like, we weren't really good at doing interactions pre-COVID. No. You really think about it. Like we, you know, everyone talks about the proverbial, you know, hallway conversation, chance encounter, water cooler interaction. You know, reality is we were pretty bad at that before. And, you know, this, you know, just coming back in the office, especially if everybody isn't back in the office together and, you know, you're saying silly things like everybody should come back at least two days a week. You know, if you just do the math, like simple arithmetic, it's you don't really increase your odds be much beyond um, staying remote. And if you, especially if you take different things, like, you know, we know that discovering new ideas happens from our bridge connections. We know yeah. that, you know, mostly those ideas come from people that we do not know well today. And if that's the case, you know, if you just bring people in randomly and it's two days a week, you know, you probably in, just do the arithmetic, you probably increase your odds by 4%, as we've talked, Scott, in the past. You know, so it's not all that good. So what? even when we do get back in the office, we need to be much more thoughtful about what is the proximity? Um, how do we place teams in close proximity to one another that could and should be learning from each other? Um, maybe there's interventions that do that, uh, discovery interventions that do that. And then how do we place people that don't know each other? Because one of the things we've been able to generate or demonstrate in remote work is if you know someone, you can refabricate that dormant yes. in an instant. And, you know, just based on a hunch, remember, I remember Scott telling me about this one time 
reaching out to you and then you connect me with Cole or, you know, Cole connects me with someone else. Uh, the problem is if I don't know you and, and I don't know who to go to, um, that's, the pro- that's the concern. And that's where, you know, coming together face to face from time to time could be advantageous. So some of the new uh, economist literature that I read talks about like you can be creative and uh, generate new ideas, <clears throat> excuse me, with someone that you've met before. <clears throat> but the problem is meeting those people. So like once you already have the connection, you can connect and you know, we can have a Zoom call, this sort of thing. But forming new connections is almost impossible in a remote environment. So it would be ideal if uh, teams were to come together and there was some sort of like rotation on the other side. So you're always meeting with a new group or like once a week, once a month, this sort of thing to keep those ties fresh and keep the ideas flowing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree anymore. And I think, I think that's where we're still in the early days. We're still in the early days of figuring out exactly how to do that. And, you know, there are certainly some uh, anecdotes and, and some good, you know, previous research that suggests, you know, proximity matters. And there are certainly some research that says, you know, newness matters. How you, how you orchestrate that without over-engineering it, that's the other side of this, right? Um, how you orchestrate that is, is, you know, I think it's going to change the way we work. And my, my personal view is that you need to push this down to the team level. And the easiest way to think about this is to give each individual team the telemetry to know what work state they're in. Are they in discovery mode and, and use your own taxonomy or language? It doesn't matter. But are you in discovery mode, like at the beginning of a project and you're still trying to absorb you know, and contract and understand the scope of something uh, or the scope or possibility of a new idea? Um, are you in heads down mode where you're purely, if you're a software development engineer, developing? If you're, you know, an engineer, you know, pure delivery mode, um, or are you in scale mode or diffusion mode? And, and, you know, in that case, you've got to come back together because you need other people to buy in. You need to get formal adoption on this thing. So to me, like if we can push these, I think the future is teaming. Um, I think of this as adaptive teaming because there are times where you're working within your team and there are plenty of times where you're teaming with other teams. And the, you first need to think about, it's a form follows function model. Uh, you first need to think about what's the function we're trying to do, discover, develop, diffuse, and then you know, think about the social architecture or the form that best suits you know, amping up discovery or you know, heads down being able to deliver with speed and velocity. So in my mind, and, and I'm sure that's not completely accurate, right? I'm giving you a, a model, a framework. We have been working with corporations on this framework. Um, and, and it is absolutely true that, you know, absent that framework, it's like the wild, wild west of interactions. Um, so it's certainly created some degree of intentionality, but we're going to get better at that over time as we develop this cadre of remote tools complemented with, you know, in-person interventions and in-person, I don't know, hoteling we're working with a large real estate firm right now to think about how and when would you bring people back together on the same floor uh, versus the floor above them and thinking about right. different types of output zones from a, from a, uh, you know, a spacing standpoint. And that's Michael. all cool. And at some point we'll get a lot better than where we are today. <clears throat> that's kind of my question. Cause a lot of this stuff makes very much intuitive sense to me. I just wonder if, if you overdo it, do employees start to feel like 
socially engineered lab rats that are part of like an ongoing Hawthorne type of experiment. <laughs> like it feels like there could be overcorrection there. And like, how do we mitigate for that when we're trying to do these type of experiments? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you asked the question earlier, Cole, about resistance or, you know, pushback on, on some of the, you know, some of the findings, some of the writings. One of the big areas of pushback for leaders is like, you know, Michael, you're over prescribing here. You're over over engineering here. And I think that's right. I, I think that was exactly right. It's one of the reasons why I think um, pushing this to the team and ensuring that the team has the telemetry to have a conversation but high judgment rules at the end of the day at the team level and the team decides when do they come back and the team decides, you know, are they in discovery mode or are they in some other work mode? So I think the other thing, and this is where like these, I don't know, like we've got these paradoxes hitting us all at one time, uh, the way we work matters, but we also have employees who have proven to themselves that they can be highly productive whenever they've got independence to make the choice of their own. And I, I think we got to meet somewhere in the middle on that. I don't think we're going to, I'm careful about over-engineering. Um, I think we can build research and I think we can then showcase that research or use those insights to enable a team to have the right conversation necessary for them to decide when and when not to come back in, when and when not to be together. Um, and, and we just have to trust the human beings at the end of the day that if equipped with the the why, why would it matter to come back in? They're going to make judgments that are optimal for everybody, including them as individuals. That, that, that's so true. And that there's ways to engineer this in a, uh, a natural sort of setting. Like you talk about this a bit in your adaptive space, make uh, certain seating areas in the hallway. The whole goal is to essentially uh engineer this serendipitous relationships you know alex pentland talks about making lunchroom tables longer or making common common lunch times uh because like essentially once you're outside of a 25 foot radius around you the odds of you talking to someone else like drop dramatically dramatically so just getting people back together in a uh, uh a way that encourages conversation even if they don't, even if the odds are small, is critical. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't and and you know I think that's better than leaving it to chance. Um, oh yes. One of the things I love um, again early days, and this is physical space. I think you can do very similar things, by the way, in virtual space. Um, but one of the things I love is the Stratus Center up at MIT is a good example of this, where you know generally if you think about the part, there's very little cross department innovation inside of uh, academic institutions. You know, usually you're within yes. a domain. Um, th there's a lot of cross-university uh, innovation, more and more of that uh, than, than perhaps ever before. And I think you could say, hey, that's where, you know, these, you know, these sort of um, virtual tools help us a lot to stay connected, even across universities, but not across uh, domain, not across, you know, colleges. So one of the things they did in the Stratus Center, which I just loved, was rather than put people in different buildings, put them all in the same building. And rather than putting them on different floors in the same building, you know, put them in different quadrants on the same floor and force them to interact in the elevators, force them to interact, you know, at the coffee pot. Like, for, you know, that's a way to take people. And it, it goes right back to what I was saying before, Scotty. That's a way to take people who might not likely know each other 
but could probably learn from one another. Maybe you've got the anthropologist with some social scientists, with, absolutely, or some economists, um, and and many would say, hey, those those domains already drift over top of each other. But you get my point. Like, put those groups together, and something different can emerge through the discovery process. Um, unlike you know, continuing to keep engineering in this building, keeping your you know manufacturing folks over there and operations is over there, which is how we tend to organize. And there, there's some great studies existing on this already, like natural experiments where, uh, say, a building had uh, asbestos removed. So they had to take different departments and stick them into a third building. And you see a uh, these authors or these professors become twice as more likely to collaborate in this setting and develop even better insights and studies as a result. So, I mean, there, there's definitely science to this. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. And then there's a day where you can imagine that we figure out how to do that on Zoom or yes. some other collaborative platform, right? Because, you know, what we've done so far is we've leaned in and locked into our teams. Maybe we've done, you know, management reviews across teams, uh, but we haven't left the free space or the flex space to, to really do discovery like you do, you know, when you've left a, an office or when you've left an office room and you're moving to the next office room and you're saying, hey, you know, it's called what you were just talking about. Like I was thinking about that the other day and that hallway conversation to and from the next office or the next you know, meeting room tends to be where real serendipity happens, not yes. the encounters at the water cooler. And there's a way to even get more intentional about that in a remote environment. And I, I think we're going we're gonna to figure that out uh, because this stuff is important like it's never been before. Well, uh, speaking of important, Michael, are there Waffle Houses in North Carolina? <laughs> I have no idea where Scott's going. Yeah, that was a stellar, <laughs> stellar transition, Scott. I have no idea where he's going with this question. The, the absolute answer to that is it wouldn't be North Carolina without a Waffle House. Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, we spent many nights in Louisiana at the Waffle House. Um Okay, so this is experimental. This has a high likelihood of failure, but uh, we're calling this the Waffle House, where we're going to take two subjects. It's either or, and uh, just try and find a happy medium. It's essentially an avenue for conversation. And uh, this is the first time we've done it, Michael. So you're you're the lab rat here, and we can all weigh in. We can all weigh. In. It's just a good time. This sort of thing. Okay, so would you rather work with uh, someone that is unreliable but friendly or someone that is reliable but a jerk um just so everybody knows i you know all your listeners know this was not rehearsed with me no 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 serendipitous um you know you're going to get this answer from me a lot so i'm i don't want to you know i don't want to blow your experiment but it depends on what i'm trying to accomplish right um i want i want that difficult person at certain points in the process. And, you know, let's just face it, like, I sometimes don't even know if I have a good idea. Um, I'm questioning my own idea. So if the, you know, if there's not friction in the discussion, you know, I may run, a, run awry with an idea that ends up blowing up somewhere out in the world. I, I want that, you know, jerk in the room, uh, <laughs> tearing that thing apart from time to time, because like, I'd much rather take it early and take it later and fell big. So I think that's my answer in that case. Um, 
So you, you see it at different stages, right? Like, so I do. I do. Like, I, I want some social cohesion um, at some early stage where I'm, you know, where, where we're just starting to get lift off. Um, you know, I want some early, some early alignment. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't take that for too long because uh, you got to pressure test some of these ideas. That, that would right. be the way I think about that. What about you, Scott? Well, I, I, I think that, boy, Michael's answer is much better than mine. He's just like got this like executive presence. Again, like, Whatever. Like, he said it depends. Okay. My take is that if you have a coworker that is unreliable, that's probably the worst scenario. If you have someone that's reliably easy to work with or someone that's reliably difficult to work with, you know what you're getting into. But if you have someone that's unreliable, that's walking on eggshells, just trying to figure it out. Like, how are they doing today? This sort of thing. And that's no way to live. That's no way to live. But what if that unreliable person is bringing you the best ideas? Unreliably, though? Yeah. I mean, I guess you just need, you don't need them all to be masterpieces. You just need them every so often. What about you, Cole? What about you, Cole? Well, as uh, a reliable jerk myself, I think I have to choose that. <laughs> I don't know. Couldn't have it any other way. I have, uh, I had a, like, a, this is the crazy thought. We're just going off the farm here. So, like, what, what if uh, organizations were, like, pro teams and you could, like, trade employees to other organizations? It'd be like, uh j and j gets uh an accountant and a uh ea and they're going to trade that to marriott for uh one data engineer and a uh receptionist to be named later see this is what i thought you were talking about when you said the social lottery earlier like, oh. this this sounds like the social lottery there we go so it's a it's a social draft don't we already do what you're describing like is it I mean, it's within organization. It's not across, but don't we call that talent management inside? <laughs> a, a bit, a bit. Like we, we funnel people across. Of course, like we give them autonomy. This where it will you think anyway until they get reorged and just say like you're going there specifically. Um, this I didn't get really about bad that. really fast. You know, this, this little <laughs> experiment of yours. If if it gets too bad, we'll just cut it out. Um, well, I don't know. Have we have you exhausted this, Cole? What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, we we've <laughs> we'll try it one more time. <laughs> See if it works. I, I will say I will say this: like just to redeem the Waffle House metaphor for a moment, you can learn a lot inside of a Waffle House. Oh yes, it's kind, that you can. A, it's kind of a fun place to go if you're a people observer, uh, and you might you might actually be able to learn a lot there. I, I saw. Yeah, funny... you don't know this. I used to work at Waffle House. I did oh, not know this. I need to know more quickly. I only worked there for like two months, but um, it was right after I graduated high school and I was needing a job before college. And uh, I worked the night shift at Waffle House, um, which is a the very strange time. Like there's strange at Waffle House and then there's night shift strange at Waffle House. Very strange. Hey, I mean, hey Cole, were you a jerk before that or after that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the PTSD, it scarred me for life. No, I, I think uh, you could say I'm actually becoming less of a jerk over time, if that's believable. But, you know, yeah, no, I was probably more of a jerk then. Well, like the, the learning curve of a job is like so steep. Like you learn so much in those first few months. Like do you have any like crazy stories or insights from Waffle House life? I mean, it was kind of embarrassing, actually. 
I would really? see like my friends from high school uh, coming back from like the bar and they're like, you work here? And I was like, yeah, sorry. I need the money. <laughs> Have you some know? hash browns. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no good stories. Just, uh, I will say this. They, uh, cause a lot of people, you know, they poo poo on waffle house, like not having good ingredients, their waffle, like how they make it is actually really like good ingredients and like it's all like freshly served so i always like say if you're going to waffle house order a waffle it's the best thing on the menu well uh, i guess on that note you want to step into the nerdery yeah well i have to ask michael have you listened to the podcast before like do you know what the nerdery is i uh i have listened to the podcast so yes okay cool i just want to make sure like i never know if people like we're just like throwing out these terms like waffle house and nerdery (laughs) like completely throwing them off guard I don't think I've heard a Waffle House story before, but that is completely new. That's new to Michael, new to us, too. So I don't know. Here, we'll get some feedback. Instant feedback. What did you think of the Waffle House? (laughs) It's good, guys. Like, I I just want to know more about Cole's experience there. Yes. (laughs) It wasn't that long, so I don't have that much to talk about, but... um... I, I do have something I want to talk about, about both of you, and then I'd love for you to comment on it, but I am so stinking proud of something that happened this week about you guys getting published. And so I wanted to just tee that up there to talk about it in the nerdy, but I want you guys to talk about what, what, what happened and why is it a big deal? Yeah. Yeah. Scotty, you want to start that one and I'll dive in? This was your brainchild. I uh, I was the analytical engine behind it, but uh, this this all came from you. I think it'd be apt if you if you described it. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to dive into this. Um, you know, I you know we we've, we've been studying networks for years, uh, and we can talk about networks and performance. We can talk about networks and and change and innovation, uh, but very rarely have we talked about networks and culture. And to me. Um, we're at the very early stages of diving deep into this, but the event that happened was we had, I would say, our first big article on networks and culture published in Organization Dynamics. Um, it's already getting some some pretty good press out there, um, and I think it's it's provoking some people, and and it really goes back to, you know, in some ways trying to dispel some myths about culture. You know, we tend to think about, we talk about corporate culture, organizational culture all the time as if it's this monolithic thing and as if it's this, you know, intentional, you know, a bunch of leaders get in a room and declare this is our culture and it, you know, just cleanly filters down through the organization. And we all know that that's never really been our experience with culture. Um, it's much more clustered. It's much more uh, unevenly distributed across an organization. And, you know, we just started playing around uh, really as part of the Connected Commons with numbers of different organizations with this, you know, this concept of culture or behaviors, if you prefer, and how they translate from person to person. And, you know, this article, uh, we've got another one coming out, you know, very soon in a management business review that puts a little bit of a different spin on it. But this particular article basically talks about culture being caught more than taught. Um, and you know, it's contagious. And, and there were three primary points that we focused on. The first thing is that cultural behaviors cluster in the network, especially the most prominent behaviors, not all behaviors, but, you know, they, they cluster and we are more likely to display a strength of somebody around us 
and in fact, the research, Scott, is 3x more likely than chance. Um, we are super contagious as individuals. Um, the, the chances of call, if you're practicing a strength, um, a behavioral strength of some sort, the chances of Scotty catching that are much greater. Um, but it's not, that's not, uh, you know, that's not enough. It, Scotty will actually translate that to me out to three degrees of separation, which is, you know, the three degree of friend separation that where we sort of pulled that from, from the, um, the power of social networks, a book that was written a number of years ago. And then the final thing is, you know, context really matters to culture spread. Um, you know, if you, and this is really sort of Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety or Rob Cross's work on energy, you know, if, while all those things are true, you know, culture clusters, culture is super contagious, there's one time where that's not true. And that is, if you've got non-psychologically safe environments, you will dampen the effect of culture spread almost immediately, almost instantaneously, uh, and especially for riskier behaviors. Um, you know, if, if you're trying to drive bold thinking um, or disruptive innovation, you know, and you're in a psychologically unsafe environment, no surprise to anyone who's read that work, that, but you could have a cluster right next to you that's very bold, and that behavior will not transfer to the next cluster uh, if, if there's not, if there's fear, if there's fear prevalence there. So, so we're having a lot of fun with this. Um, I don't know, Scott. What did I miss on the on the nerdiness of all this? Uh, Michael really really challenged me in uh, you know devising this methodology, and like I'm like unreasonably proud of it, particularly the contagious nature and how that came about. Uh, we wrote this article with the uh, great John Golden. The official title is "The Three C's for Cultivating Organizational Culture in a Hybrid World." Uh, available through organizational dynamics, and we will uh, put it in the show notes. But it, it's it's a really innovative spin on how networks, how culture transmits through the network, and uh, kind of building on what Michael said, we found that different behaviors, cultural behaviors, transmit at different rates as well. So there are certain things that are like very tough to teach in a remote environment. They need personal connections, they need high trust environments. Uh, kind of like if, if you have a jerk, you need to be able to be receptive to that jerk to take that feedback and um, develop that skill set. Go, please, Cole, please go. No, if you have a point, keep making it. Sorry, I just... Oh, and and, and based on the function and uh, the roles that people play, we, we see different cultural artifacts sort of pulling in the network and it's it's functional. Or that organization in a lot of respects. Uh, very innovative research. Hope to continue this line of research and uh, super, super proud to get it out the door and get it out in public. And I, I didn't know another article was coming, but that's even, even more impressive as far as I'm concerned. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me, and maybe this is a little bit of inside baseball, but this is the nerdery. I'm, you very, very rarely see three non-full-time academics published together without a full-time academic on the paper because it's just very uncommon and because it's it's such a long and laborious process I, first of all i wanted to commend you guys on that but second of all how did you do it <laughs> like how did you get, make your way all the way through the process um you know without you know having a sherpa to get you to the top of the mountain 
It's um, it, it's taken some time, and and I'll say, you know, at least I have one foot in academia from time to time, so I have this perspective of, you know, there are very different life cycles between academia and us practitioners. Yes. Uh, so I think there were a few times where I had to talk uh, Scott and John off the edge, like, okay, just calm down, guys. Like, <laughs> it's gonna get through. It's gonna come through. Uh, and there were obviously multiple iterations, as there needs to be in any peer-reviewed um, journal. Uh, and it's better because of that, for sure. Uh, so it, it certainly took some time, uh, but I will say that um, almost immediately uh, it was it was pretty well received uh, in in the the details, the design, and those types of things were pushed back on just to make sure that we were being really clear about it. Um, nothing really changed other than our way of articulating it. But the findings themselves, um, I think there was a lot of excitement around even during the first review. So this is pro, you know, we're low bias, uh, but, you know, being bias nerds for a second, um, <laughs> it's, it's probably a fresh perspective uh, and a unique, um, a, a unique set of data sets uh, that, that I think had offered it or maybe pushed it through even a little faster than what you would see in traditional academic research. And I think it's also like a microcosm of the innovation process, like where we started, there were so many starts and stops and like, how are we going to proceed? How do you actually measure clustering in the network? How do you measure contagion in the network in like a forward way? And I, I think back to some of the initial things I brought back to the group were just like, and eh, we're going to cut it. They're not moving the needle. So, I mean, like when you finally see the article, it feels like a fully formed idea, but there's a lot of... Uh, iterations thought blood sweat and tears uh failed attempts this sort of thing that go into it as well that makes it all the more beautiful though you know you oh yeah it. yeah that's so cool i like i'm so proud of you guys i've never published anything like that and so i'm a little bit a little bit jealous and in awe um i'm wondering do you want to move on to the next uh nerdery topics Scott? yes uh let's cover one of my favorite recent articles, and uh, Michael and I are both fans of Ronald Burt, who's a third article on, uh, pardon me, third author on this article entitled uh, Network Creativity and Time, Staying Cre Creative Through Brokerage and Network Rejuvenation. And this article has uh, three of my favorite things. So it's got network analysis, it's got innovation, and Doctor Who. So what they did, the TV show Doctor Who, so they took 50 years of Doctor Who episodes and uh, identified the different uh, writers on the show. And of course, over 50 years, you're going to have some people come in, some people stick around, and they understood who had worked together and uh, who was coming in over time and had uh, another person or this like, group of Doctor Who experts. I kind of think of them like, the uh, comic book guy from like uh, Simpsons, you know, rate the creativity of each episode. And essentially, they found that um, if you have, you need like a sweet spot. So if you have people that have been together for too long, creative ideas don't happen. If you have just a bunch of new people come together, the creativity ideas are just all over the place and don't really gel. What you need is uh, people that have been there for a while, understand the process, and inject that with new blood, fresh ideas. That's the sweet spot. That's how you actually form creative ideas in this sort of team concept. And the, the, there's 
obviously implications for how we can infuse this into organizations currently. Boy, I have so much to jump on with that. It's an awesome article. Um, and Ron's work has just informed our work so much over the years. Yes. yes. Um, I, you know, I think of it like, like that articulation of the article causes me to think about, you know, complex adaptive systems and the edge of chaos. And if you, if you know anything about complex adaptive systems, just to go backward, to go forward for a moment, if you're in status, like if you're stable as an entity, as an organization, as a team, it's hard to learn because you're just repeating the same pattern. You're moving in the road. Um, one of the reasons that Ron has argued over the years that teams that are in status with each other for long durations don't innovate and don't come up with creative new ideas is because your reputational risk, your reputational risk is very high. So for you to move outside of the social norms of a group and come up with a creative new idea is much more costly. Um, because you know, you're not going to destroy those relationships for the sake of some crazy idea that may or may not work. So risk tolerance shrinks as stasis status is, is more consistent. On the other hand, I'm back to the edge of chaos. If you're in complete chaos, there's so much confusion and there's so much, um, I'll just say iteration and novelty that it's hard to wrap your arms around any kind of form factor. And it's the sweet spot in between those two, which you know, complexity science would say the edge of chaos, that really fine edge where you're not quite in status and you're not quite in chaos is where all growth happens. And, and I think that's what that article describes. Like as some degree of turnover happens, you're bringing in, you're sourcing new ideas. Um, you've got an input, an influx of new ideas, new information, new perspectives. Um, but if you're if you've got too much of that, you can't really productively move forward with it and produce and bring anything new into the world. So, so that's that's why I love that article. I think it's a a very modern way of thinking about this concept of the edge of chaos. And I think organizations, when you get too chaotic, you need to move towards the edge. Um, or if you get too stable, you you know startups sometimes are nothing but finesse and you know, a bunch of complexity and they need to find some degree of order and large, stable, calcified organizations, you know, are so static that they can't create anything new. So I think our, our job as practitioners is always to move people closer to the intersection of bridging and bonding relationships in, in the language of that article um, or the edge of chaos. I, I love this idea of the edge of chaos. Some might call it the adaptive space, right, Michael? Uh, <laughs> But ah, you... <laughs> I mean, but Brian Uzi, another network analysis uh, author, uh, has a very similar take that um, it, it evolves trust, like in environments where you have a bunch of new people together. I, I don't trust your ideas and therefore, like, maybe we're going to debate them and this just never come to come to light. But if you have a group that's already worked together, they have a basic understanding. They've already worked together. They can uh, rely on each other and then take the input from other people outside. And that's where, you know, new ideas can be formed while holding on to the older traditions. Yeah. And, and I think Brian demonstrates that by looking at, you know, academia and, you know, what he calls home run papers, which are yes. these papers that, you know, get cited far more, you know, like 10x more than the average paper. 
And, and it's, you know, it's not 30 people working on those. It's not a research team of 30 people, but it's not a research team of two. And there's some stability and replication across research streams, but there's also some diversity in that they generally represent different universities, which is what I was saying before. So, you know, I, I think you see that in the motions of his research as well. Um, and the good news about some of the things that he does is, you know, he can cite this across large data pools like, you know, patent filings and home run papers. And, and I, I think you're getting some of that. If you don't have some level of trust, um, you, know, you don't have that, you know, you don't have enough stability yes. to anchor into. But if you don't have some degree of novelty, you don't have anything fresh enough that it's out, out of the ordinary, which is generally, you know, home run papers are well-grounded papers that are unordinary enough that people are going to listen to them. And I think that's, that's what he demonstrates so well with his research. And this has direct implications for what we were talking about earlier, like bringing teams together so that they cross mingle, cross interact. Of course, in this uh, scenario, we're optimizing for creativity or innovation, but uh, you know, results may vary depending on what you want to produce, whether it's high productivity, innovation, what have you, as benefits the organization. You just wanted to smuggle in Doctor Who. I knew it. Uh, I knew yeah, it. that's, that's fair. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Are you a Doctor Who fan, Michael? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I will say that I have not traditionally been the Doctor Who fan, but there's somebody who's been touting a paper to me recently that has uh, caused me to pay more attention. What, what, what is, what does Michael watch on a Saturday night? What, what do I watch on a Saturday? No, I'm, that's a bad question. Um, <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm pretty much uh, a heads down either fanatical football fan, um, or TV's off. So I don't I don't watch a whole lot of TV. Oh, the Steelers are out too, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next, a, next year, next year. I'm a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and quite saddened about that right now. Well, uh, you want to move on to the last uh, nerdery topic? Uh, this is a uh, article called uh, "Hated Office Traditions," and essentially the, the thesis is that uh, office traditions that are widely hated and unpopular tend to uh, stick around the longest because going along is a sign of conformity and it's based on a sample of uh korean employees and it's largely around drinking and drinking culture which you know is a bit taboo um but once again we get this idea of conformity and you know people just partaking in uh these sort of exercises to you know possibly curry favor or show their group allegiance um are there any hated office traditions that you guys essentially don't miss right now? I want to let Cole go first on that one. He he wasn't prepared. Here, here, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. I don't know. Like, yeah, I know one. And okay, they, but please. This, this actually still happens on Zoom, so it's not necessarily just in person. I hate when people say, "Let's popcorn it," like, popcorn and they're it. like, "Yeah," What's like that? when you're trying to introduce, like if you have like a bunch of people, oh. it's like, "Hey, we need to introduce," like. Let's popcorn it. I'm like, oh my god, that's the worst. I don't know. I've never heard that term, but yes, the uh, round of introductions can be super painful. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this as as you mentioned. It. I was like, this sounds like like the Milgram or the Ash experiments of like conformity. It's like <laughs> yes, they're the direct. How much relation. would you electric shock somebody to fit in with the culture at your work? I don't know. 
that's that's actually where my head went. It's like how do you how do you stop conformity? I mean, for, to answer your question directly, I don't like the artificial celebrations where people feel like they've got to make stuff up to celebrate about. Um, you know, I believe me, I think we need to celebrate when we do something meaningful and significant, but sometimes they get kind of cheesy. And, you know, artificially doing that, there's got to be a better, I don't have it, like maybe the listeners do, there's got to be a better way to, you know, set the bar to where you know, we're not just saying things because we're saying things because we're adding space to say them, but we're saying things that are meaningful and truly, you know, make a difference either to the team or 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 the business. Um, that's a cheesy one that gets to me. But I do think of you know some of the some of the ash uh, research, like you know, and how we how social conformity happens, and you know how maybe we need to set the tone to speak against conformity from time to time. Um, you know, social, you know, this is the thing about cohesion. Cohesion can be really, really good because it helps you to move fast. And cohesion can be really, really bad because it helps you to move really, really fast off the edge of the cliff immediately in front of you because no one's screaming out loud, uh-oh, look what's coming. And, you know, I was, I, I really have always loved the research about find one ally. You know, it's that, it's that research where my number, my numbers won't serve me right if by memory, but I think it was like, 80% of people will say something that they know is wrong if they think that the rest <laughs> of the group agrees with it. And But if they only have one ally, one person in the room to anchor into who will support the fact that they can knowingly speak up and say that is wrong, you know, then they're like nine times more likely to say it. Um, and I, I, I just don't, I think sometimes that's where social cohesion can get in our way or group think can get into our way. That, that's that's really powerful just having one ally to stick with you and this is essentially what milgram found uh he, this like experiment where he had people uh walking down the street and uh, pardon me a, a group of confederates looking up at a building and uh, people would be passing the streets like new york city and uh invariably they'd look up too you know you get this like kind of social uh signal to look up and like to your point michael as well like this is the tension between we see a lot of talk around uh, bring your authentic self to the office and adopt to our culture to get things done. And it's a tension, right? It's it's a, uh, a sweet spot that we need to identify. One of my favorite studies of all time. I've actually replicated that study. I've actually taken my in different ways because, you know, if once you read it, you know it but taken my class at Penn out on the streets and replicated those, those types of studies, really? which are awesomely fun. Uh, without getting I, know, I, mean, I feel like <laughs> it's like, if somebody points up, I'm, I'm going to look. I, I don't think that <laughs> makes me like a conformist. I'm just like, hey, they must have seen something cool up there. No doubt. I'm missing yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Michael, this has been probably one of the most amazing and effective conversations we've had. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Scott, any final words before we give Michael the last word? Uh, I apologize for the Waffle House. We'll do better <laughs> next time. It's, it's great to see you. Always love talking uh, networks and uh, life with you. Good to see you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Cole. Awesome. Um, don't give up on the Waffle House. It always takes multiple iterations <laughs> to do something right, guys. Um, 
You know, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm jazzed up about this conversation. I'm jazzed up about where we are uh, really as a people analytics profession. You know, for the first time in human history, we're bringing real science to how individuals connect that work. And I, I, I just think like, let's hear it for the science because I think we're going to see things from a future work standpoint, again, as I've already reiterated across these five years that are going to be game changing. So um, keep doing what you're doing, keep pulling people in um, and always, always willing to do this on record or off record. Um, and if you're ever in North Carolina, there's a Waffle House just a mile away. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's hear it for the science. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really nice to meet you, Michael, as well. Um, but you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Michael Arena. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, guys. Bye. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostic.